Pastor John Cannon and the Congregation of Victory Church welcome you to this message from the Word of God. It is our heartfelt desire to see you grow closer to the Lord and to help you become all that He has created you to be. Our prayer is that through this ministry you would come to know Him in a greater way and that these teachings from Scripture would better equip you to fulfill His plan in your life. Now, let's join Pastor John as we study the Word together. Thanks for coming out to, to worship the Lord. That's what we're really here for. Even though this is going to be probably the best sermon you've ever heard, you're not coming out to be entertained. You're coming out to worship and hear God's word spoken. So I appreciate you coming out this morning. I thank God for moving in the hearts of all of you to bring you here. It takes a special act of will to be here. There are many other things that you could be doing, like sleeping on Sunday mornings instead of coming out to worship the Lord. And it, it takes God's influence in your life, and that's something we'll talk about in a little bit, to come out here and to do these things. So I appreciate you doing it. And I appreciate you giving me the time, Pastor, to, to, to use your pulpit. So let's pray before I get started. Dear Lord, we thank you for the day you've given us. Lord, we're so humbled by all that you've done for us and all the many blessings that you continue to pour down on your people. Lord, we thank you for these people that you've moved in their hearts to bring out, to bring them into this house of the Lord today, to hear your word spoken and to sing songs of praise and worship to you in fellowship with each other. We thank you for all the many things that you've done, Lord. I ask that you be with us this morning. Open the hearts and minds of all that hear these words. Lord, give me the words to speak. Let what I say be truly your word, not mine. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> all right. We're continuing on our series of first, in First John. So I'll be reading 1 John chapter 2, 15 through 17. I'll give you a couple of minutes to get there. Now I'd like you to read along with me. 1 John 2, 15 through 17. I'd like to start my sermons by reading the scripture that I'll be referencing, just to kind of give you an overview, just to kind of see it all in context. Because as we go through, I'm going to take it apart. But I want you to see what, what it looks like when it's all in context and it's all together. So let's read 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things that belong to the world. If anyone loves the world, love of the Father is not in him. For everything that belongs to the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride in one's lifestyle, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world, with its lust, is passing away. But the one who does God's will remains forever. Amen. All right. So we're continuing on in our series of First John. And we're in First John chapter 2. I remember the first verse of First John chapter 2, verse 1. It says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. John is addressing a particular heresy, and, and that we'll get into, the, into all the heretical teachings later on in the, in the chapter, or in this epistle. But uh, he's addressing one thing in particular. He's addressing sin. He wrote this to address sin, to warn us about sin. Well, this particular scripture, this, this chapter, or this paragraph within the, the chapter is titled, A Warning Against the World. And that, I thought that was quite, quite unique. Warning against the world. When you think about it, though, warning against the world says, 
verse 15 says, Do not love the world or all the things that belong to the world. Well, wasn't it John himself who wrote Scripture, quoting the words of Jesus, saying what? John 3.16 God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son. So, seems to be kind of a contradictory statement here. On one hand, they're saying, love the world. God so loves the world that He gave us gave His one and only Son so that whoever believes in Him shall not. And on the other hand, He's saying, don't love the world. So how do we reconcile these two things? Well, in John 3.16, we're talking about the world in a different way. We're talking about the world, meaning the people of the world, meaning the souls that God created and placed on this world. We're talking about John 3.16. He's speaking of the people, not the world system, not the world itself. See, God revealed his love for us, his ultimate creation, by the sacrifice he made by sending his one and only son into a fallen world to redeem the peoples of the world. Does that make sense? So in that context, he's talking about the humanity. In this context, he's talking about something entirely different. In Matthew 28, Matthew 28 charges us with the Great Commission. We're to spread the word of truth throughout the fallen world. We're to go to all nations and baptize them, teach them the word, and then baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So how can we be called to hate that? We're called to love that. But we're called to love the world, meaning the humanity of the world, not the world system. The world system is what we are called to hate. The world system is the domain of, of the devil himself. It's the fallen world that we live in. Not us, but the world that we live in that we are to hate. This verse, in effect, is calling us not to love worldliness. And that is the evil of the world. It, it, anything that calls us away from God... Anything that's contrary to the will of God and is calling on our lives, that's what we're supposed to hate. And that's what John is warning against here. He said, do not love those things, those things that will entrap you, that will call you away and make you slaves to something other than, than to God. And the second part of that, that verse is a pretty harsh statement, isn't it? If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That's pretty definitive. I mean, that's drawing a line. That's a firm line between godliness and worldliness. John is saying we can't serve two masters. You must love one and hate the other. How can a person love the world and God at the same time? He can't. Love of one necessarily results in the hatred for the other. The two are diametrically opposed. They're oil and water. They're light and darkness. They're hot and cold. They are opposite ends of a spectrum. And the next verse explains why. Verse 16. Can a Christian exist in both worlds? Can we straddle the fence and love God to a point and love the world with the rest of our hearts? No. But isn't that what we try to do? Isn't that how we come out on Sunday morning and we praise God and we worship and and we sing these songs and we fellowship with each other, we give our tithes, we give our offerings, and then we live like the world the rest of the week? Is that truly loving God? Or are we straddling that fence? Are we trying to be in both worlds at the same time? Are we trying to get the goodness that comes from our relationship with God and still hang on to our sinful lusts of the world? Have you seen that? I've seen it. No, I've done it. 
And I've continued to do it because I live in a fallen body in a fallen world. But you can't have it both ways. You either love God or you love the world. Verse 16 says, For everything that belongs to the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride in one's lifestyle, is not from the Father, but from the world. What we're really talking about here is sin. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride in one's lifestyle are the tools that Satan uses to destroy us. God's children. These are the tools that he has. These are the the ways that, that Satan can get a hold of our lives and make us deny whose children we really are. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and pride are the things that destroy us. So let's talk about them in detail. Let's talk about each one of them a little bit. The lust of the flesh. What is that? Well, that includes the desires of the flesh, the things that are for the benefit and the pleasure of the body. Of course, it includes... What's the first thing you think of when somebody says lust? Yeah, I know what you just thought. And that's true. It includes that, right? It includes the, the, the sexual lust and the longing. But that's not all. That's not all that includes. That's not all that entails. It also includes gluttony and laziness and sloth and fixation with pleasurable pursuits. It involves sleeping in on Sunday morning because it, the, instead of coming to church because the bed is just so warm and you're so comfortable. That's lust of the flesh. That's doing things to, just to enhance yourself or to make you feel good. Things that, that you desire for the body. Is the lust of the flesh. Anything that, that makes you and your feelings more important than the things of God. Lust of the flesh. Now, are these things necessarily wrong? Sex, food, relaxation. Are these things necessarily wrong? No, they're not. If they're used in context, and they're used the way that God intended them to be used, they can all be good and glorious things. Yeah, we have to eat, don't we? We have to eat to survive. If we don't, then we're no use to God in the world because of calls home. Right? All of these things have their place. Pleasure has its place. Feeling good has its place. If used in context, they can be good and glorious and God-honoring things. It's when they're misused and used out of context that they become sin. So don't, don't get the idea that if you enjoy something, it's sinful. I mean, there have been religious sects where, where if, that all joy had to be stamped out of your life. That if, you, if it was fun, you couldn't do it. Had to be wrong. Had to have been of the world. That's not true. God wants us to have fun. He wants us to rejoice. He calls us to sing and to dance. But do it in context. Do it in His way. And it's God honoring. Do it out of context. It's sin. These things all have a place. The problem is when we elevate them to the place that God should occupy in our lives. What about lust of the eyes? What does that mean? Craving for things, for possessions, for money, for toys, for objects of power. These, things, these are the things that make us feel more secure. And I really, you know, I'm, I'm just a little nervous if I don't have $10,000 in, in a savings account. Riches are a powerful lure of the world system. 
Scripture warns the kings of Israel not to acquire many horses and many wives. And, of course, what did they do? They did both. What about the rich young man that asked what he must do to follow Jesus, and he walked away dejected because Jesus told him to give away all his stuff and follow him? Solomon, the man who had everything, called it all vanity. The love of stuff is greater than the love of God, and the love of God is not in you. If the love of power is greater than the love of God, which we relate power in in our culture, we relate power to money, don't we? If you've got money, you've got power. It's a shame that our political system is based on who can spend the most, not who has the most who has the best ideas. It's stuff, it's it's greed that draws us away from God. When 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 greed and when stuff and lust of the eye become greater than our love for God when we push God aside. Matthew six twenty four says no man can save two can slave yeah, excuse me. No one can be slave to two masters since he he will hate one and love the other or be devoted to one and despise the other. We cannot be slaves to God and to money. It's sin. But what about pride? What about pride in love in one's lifestyle? This is speaking of arrogance. It's speaking to the explicit and undeniable fact that I am much better than everybody else. I mean, how could, how could I not be? After all, you know, look at me. That's pride. That's arrogance. It's the unshakable belief that the world is a better place because of my existence in it. The very fact that I'm breathing makes the world a better place, don't you think? I'm sure you all agree. See, some do. Some are saying, no. All right. That's the pride. In, that's pride. That's putting me before others. What do you think road rage is? Man, I get cut off in traffic. Man, man I get... Whoa. Bushy. Right? Because that person is obviously much more important than I am, and where he's going is much more important than where I'm going. Because that, that is his pride that's playing out. And then it's my pride for, that is getting wounded because my stuff is more important than his stuff, and he had the audacity to cut in front of me, of all people. It's all pride. This is, this is the suppression of freedom of others because they're obviously inferior to me, is pride. What I have to say is more important than what you have to say. The way I live is the right way to live. Because you have to be just like me if you're going to be perfect. How many times have we heard that? We see that every day. We confront that every day. People that have a better idea, they're faster, they're younger, they're better looking, they can sing better than you. And they take pride in that to the point that they're putting you down and making you feel small. That's pride. But you notice that all the other sins common to humanity, all of them, if you look closely at the very core of that sin, you will find what? You will find pride. Pride is at the center of it all. I deserve this. Because it's my desire, I should be able to do that, even though the Scriptures call it sin. Every sin has pride at its core. And in fact, wasn't it pride 
that caused the fall. It was Satan's pride, Lucifer's pride, that, that, that he could be equal to God. They called him and the angels to fall. And it was pride that caused Adam and Eve to fall. And it's pride that caused each and every one of us to fall. God calls us to humility, to place the needs of others before ourselves, to refrain from seeking power and position, but to yield to authority. And that's exactly the opposite of pride. These are the very tools of the devil, lust, envy, and pride. And he used them a great effect in the garden. The serpent played on Eve when he saw the, she saw the forbidden fruit was good for food and delightful to look at. And it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. That was the lust of the body, the lust of the eye, and pride. The result was the fall of the world. And the world is now locked into this system and is unable to redeem itself. The good news is that the devil is a one-trick pony. And that he has only one plan. One set of evils to tempt us with. Presented in many forms, but in the root, all sin is still lust and envy, and pride. And so you're asking yourself, how is that good news? As effective as these things are when applied to me and to you, they fail miserably when they're applied to God. In the beginning of his ministry, Jesus was led into the desert to be tempted. Jesus was hungry, and the devil offered him a way to feed his body, lust of the body. And Jesus replied, it is written... Man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil reminded Jesus of his place. How the angels themselves would save him if he fell from the highest point of the temple. He was, after all, the Son of God. Shouldn't he use his position for his own glory? Pride. Jesus answered, it is also written, do not test the Lord your God. Because Jesus refused to place himself higher than God even though he had every right to exercise his claim to an exalted position. He refused to bow down to pride. And then the devil offered him domain over all the kingdoms of the world, and Jesus was possessed all the material things, all the money, all the power. He was tempting him with lust of the eye. If only Jesus would worship the devil instead of God, he could have everything. Jesus replied with a simple but profound statement, of his position in God. Go away, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then John goes on to make the point that all these things in the world are temporary and will soon pass away. First Peter chapter 3 talks about the end of the world, the day of judgment, how all of this will, will pass away, how we'll all be burned to a cinder. It's all temporary. What will remain after this world is gone are two things. Our eternal souls and the things of God. All the rest of this will be gone. Everything that we cling to, everything that we put our trust in, everything that we we hold on to so desperately will be gone. It's temporary. We're just passing through this world. Naked we came into this world, naked we shall depart from it. All of these things bring us nothing. It's all temporary. But how is that possible? 
The disease of sin has infected every person ever born except one. There is one man who has overcome the love of the world with love for God. He did it using the very power of God himself. And Jesus, of course, is that man. He walked through the same valleys that we walk through, but he came through uncorruptible and he emerged to glory. He set the example of the power of godliness over worldliness. And it seems that we mere men and women are doomed. We've got no power over the sin in ourselves. But God has more than ample power over sin and he offers it to us. Our goal as Christians is to become more like Christ in all things, and that includes our relationship with the world. He has the power to overcome, and he imparts that power unto us. By keeping our eyes on him, the world passes away. One day, all of this will be gone, burned up, burned to a cinder. All that will remain in us, God, all that will remain will be us, God, and our relationship with him. So the question is, how will that day find you? In God or in the world? In God and His eternal salvation or in the world and His eternal damnation? Because all these things, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, the pride in our position, the pride in our lifestyle, all of these things are sin. And they've captivated us. They've infected the very soul of who we are. They're, they're, it's part of our DNA as humans now, since the fall. That these three things will raise their ugly head over and over and over in our lives. And the harder we try to squelch them under our own power, the more they will blossom up. We don't have the power to overcome these things. We don't have the power to redeem ourselves from our fallen state and the fallen state of the world. We don't on our own. But God has given us the power to overcome. He's given us the power through His Son. He makes it very clear and very easy to say. It's a very simple message. Love God, hate the world. It's more difficult than practice. But He gave us His Son. He gave us the cross. He gave us the blood shed on the cross to redeem us from these sins that we cannot overcome on our own. He gave us forgiveness for eternity. He promised us that if we accepted His Son and became more like His Son than became less like the world, that He would redeem us from our fallen state, and He does. So the question is, where are you in your relationship with Jesus Christ? Because that is where the power to overcome sin comes from, and that's the only place it comes from. So the question is, where are you? What do you do with this man, Jesus? Because the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and pride will overcome without Christ in your life. So if the man would come forward, go ahead and get in place. Before the beginning of the world, God understood the decisions we would make. And he provided a plan, a plan to save us from all of this, a plan to pull us out of this, of this septic tank that we live in and bring us to his throne. He sent his son, his one and only son, the one perfect man, the God-man who was holy God and holy man, he sent him into this world to live like us, 
and to be like us and to suffer the same temptations that we suffer. He did that so that we could have this high priest that's interceding for us, someone who's been there and understands what temptations are like, who understands what it is to be hungry and naked and cold. But he also had the power to overcome. He had the full power of God to overcome these things. And he showed us the way. He gave us the power through his son to boldly approach the throne of God and to lay all these things down. I can't overcome sin on my own. But through the power of God, we have victory. Does that mean I won't stumble? No. Does it mean I won't sin? No. But it means that, I have, that doesn't, I'm not enslaved to it any longer. Yeah, sometimes the flesh will rise up and things will go wrong. And I'm forgiven for those things. But I'm not enslaved to it. I'm not in bondage to it any longer because of what Jesus did for me and what he did for you. So I'd like every head bowed and every eye closed for a minute. I want you to examine yourself and ask yourself where you are. Because in the end, there will be your eternal soul and the things of heaven. How will that find you? Will that find you in God's grace? Will that find you in love with His Son? Will that, will that find you with the love of God in your heart? Or will it find you with the things of the world? Will it find you with the lusts and the desires and the sin lodged firmly in your soul? God gave us the power to overcome all that. You need merely take it. It's a simple invitation. It's, it's I'm reaching my hand to you. you. All you have to do is take it. Grace is yours. Forgiveness is yours. Power to overcome sin is yours. You just have to take it. It's freely offered. It's a gift. You can't earn it. But you can receive it. So this morning, I ask you to look into your heart. Ask yourself on that day, when I stand before God, how will He find me? If you can truly answer in your heart, He will find me in the things of God. He will find me walking with Jesus. Praise God. If you can truly say in your heart, I don't know where I am. I don't know how God will find me on that day. Then today is the day to do business with God. Today is the day to accept that free gift that he's offering. Today is the day to pray to be redeemed. To give yourself over to God. It's a simple prayer. Something like, I understand, Lord, that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. And I'm asking, Lord, for your salvation. I'm asking for Jesus to come into my heart and be my Lord and my Master and my salvation. If you fervently pray that, then God will find you on that day, a son of of God and a follower of his Son. So I ask that if you have not done business with God, today would be the day. You don't have to come forward. You can do it right where you are. It's the things of God overcoming the power of the world. Lord Jesus, 
Lord God, there's so much sin in the world, so much strife in the world. We see the world as it is. You've opened our eyes, those that follow you, to see the world for its evil and its wickedness. You've taught us not to love that, not to follow after that, but to, to follow after the things of you, to follow after grace, to follow after forgiveness, to follow after salvation, to follow after godliness, to be more like your son. Lord, I, I pray that anyone that needs to, to come to you today, that you would work in their heart and you'd move them to salvation. Lord, I pray that those of us that are calling on your name, you would give us the power to overcome these evils in our own lives and those around us. Empower us to make a difference in this fallen world. Let our light shine throughout the world and let the glory of God be seen through us. Lord, we ask that you go with us and protect us. We're in this house of God today. We've got a shield of protection around us, but we'll leave here soon. We'll be in that world again. We ask that you build this hedge around us, that you build us up and make us strong in you and give us peace as we face this uncertain world. Lord, we thank you and praise you for all that you are. In Jesus' name. Well, thank you for joining us for this message from the Word of God. We know that the truth you have just heard will change your life if you believe it and intentionally apply it. If you need someone to pray with or maybe you just want someone to talk to, please call us at 618-622-9360. That's 618-622-9360. Or you can email us at victory at victorychurchonline.net. If you're interested in obtaining more teaching materials, or if you'd like to partner with us in this ministry, please contact us. You can email or call, or send a request to 715 Lake Point Center, Suite 109, O'Fallon, Illinois, 62269. Come and check us out on the web at www.victorychurchonline.net. And again, we thank you and are glad you could join us.